Father, thank you for that reminder that uh, you have been incredibly good to us. And so today I pray as we look at your word that you would remind us of what that looks like. Lord, be pleased with our time today. I, I pray that our worship through our obedience would be pleasing to you, that our worship through our singing, that our worship through our praying, and our worship through our giving, Father, that all those things would simply be to put a smile on your face. God, help us to accomplish that. It's through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Why don't you grab your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 2. <clears throat> Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we still have those available in the back for you, so you are more than welcome to grab one of those. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, then take that home with you. Let that be yours. And um, yeah, write your notes in it, draw your doodles in it, whatever you need to, to follow along with what's being said there. So if you weren't here with us last week, um, we began a series in the book of Mark. We're going to take the next 15, 16 weeks maybe of walking through the entire book. We're going to go a chapter a, a week, one chapter every week. And so this week we're in Mark chapter 2. Next week we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. And so I want to encourage you, like I did last week, I'd like to encourage you to take your Bibles and every day this week read through Mark chapter 3. Write down the notes, the things that stand out to you. Uh, journal if you're a journaler. Uh, send me an email. Let me, let me say this too. Many of you have sent me emails and Facebook messages about some of the things, the text messages... Um, many of you sent me text messages after last night. Thank all of you for your care and concern for my soul after my Patriots loss. Um, what I'm about to say doesn't apply to you. Um, I will reply to the emails, texts, and Facebook messages tomorrow. Uh, this past week, I, I got out of Dodge for a few days um, without cell phone service, which there are still places that exist where that's true. Um, it's pretty awesome. Um, however, what's not awesome is driving back and getting into cell range and hearing your phone sound like it's setting off a nuclear alarm. Um, so I, if I haven't gotten back to you, it is not because I'm ignoring you. It is because I was out of town, and I do plan on responding to those of you who texted and, and emailed and all that tomorrow. So um, the, the point of the book of Mark was found in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It's about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and last week, as we kind of jumped in, I reminded you and, and warned you ahead of time that this is going to be a year where we are going to emphasize, like we haven't before, discipleship. We're, we're going to put way more emphasis in that than we ever have before. We're going to be talking specifically about next steps, because there isn't a person in the room who doesn't need to take a next step. We, we don't want to become complacent, so we want to continue to drive and take next steps, but I believe firmly that growing in discipleship, taking those next steps, is going to flow out of knowing who Jesus is. And so as we look at the book of Mark, particularly the first eight or nine chapters, that really is going to be our focus. Who is Jesus? And last week, as we looked at Mark chapter 1, we found that Jesus is unique. He's taught with an authority that nobody had ever heard before. He was able to cast out a demon demonstrating his authority. He was able to heal someone who was sick. He was able to heal many sick and demon-possessed. He was able to heal the leper. And all of these different things, what he did was he just demonstrated for every single one of us that he, in fact, is different than any who had come before and any who would come after. 
His name is Jesus, and he is the authoritative, powerful son of God. So last week, I, I tried to do the entire chapter, and I almost gave myself a mouth hernia. So this week, this week we're not going to do quite as much. Um, I'm going to warn you, though, it's going to seem like the message is done. We'll, we'll take communion together, and then I'm going to do message part two. So don't be like, yes, I survived the first the, the, the message. You survived just the first part. Uh, the, the real credit goes to those who survived both. Okay, so Mark chapter 2. I'm going to look at this first story, a very familiar story, but I want to walk through it, kind of point some things out at you, and then make application for us this morning in particular. All right, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this. When Jesus entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together let me try that again. So many people gathered together that there was, let me try that one more time. You ready? Man. All right. Mark chapter two, verse, <laughs> verse one, when he entered Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home. So many people, there we go, gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. So word got around small town. You guys are very aware of how that works, Right. So a small town finds out Jesus has returned to this house in Capernaum, probably Simon Peter's home, we're not exactly sure, but probably the same home he was in in chapter 1. And it says that so many people showed up that the place was packed out. So many people showed up that even outside the place was packed out. Not even in the doorway was there room. So the idea is there's, there's little tiny alleys that would run next to the homes, and so that alley was filled with people as well as inside the home, and that's where Jesus is, and he is doing what he was sent to do. He was doing the thing that he saw as his priority, was, which was to preach the good news, the gospel, that was himself. So he began to share those things. Look at verse 3. They came to him, bringing a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they weren't able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. So again, familiar story. The four friends come alongside with this man who is paralyzed. We don't know why he's paralyzed. We don't know how paralyzed he is. We just know he can't get to Jesus, not just because the crowds are surrounding Jesus, but because he's unable to get there himself. So his friends pick up his, his, his mat, and they bring him to the roof of the home that Jesus is in. So you've got to understand what the homes looked like back then versus now. It's very different. So the, the, the homes usually were uh, a one-story building with a flat roof up on top. And then outside that one-story building, there'd be some type of staircase so you could access the roof. And the roof would be um, built with um, wooden beams, and then they would be covered over with uh, reeds, with branches. And then those reeds and branches would be packed full, I mean, just completely compacted with dirt and mud and pitch to kind of waterproof it a little bit. And then in that climate, think... Think Southern California climate, warm, dry climate. That would dry out, and actually it would provide for them a waterproof roof where if it did rain, the people inside the home were protected. Now, now that, that roof wasn't just a roof that you would look at every once in a while. It was a usable space. And so what would often happen is people would go out on that staircase to the top of the roof, and they would, they would dry food up there. They would, um, they would sleep up there during warm nights. We see that in Acts chapter 10 with Peter. He is sleeping on the roof just before he is called to Cornelius. 
Uh, they would go up there. They would use it for a workspace. It was, it was a very common place for people to go to would be getting up on the, on the roof, okay? Now, Jesus is in the house below them. And I love the, the, the very visible uh, and, and emotional and action-like words that Mark uses here. He says, they removed the roof and they dug through it. Now, now, that's how they had to get through the roof. It wasn't just like tear off the shingles and then break up the plywood. It was like you had to pull the, the mud, the pitch. You had to dig through the, the, the branches. You had to get that. And, and, and the thought, and this is stupid, but this will give you a little insight into me. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking, now as Jesus is in the house teaching, and they're above him tearing up the roof, does he continue to teach? Because I can't continue to teach when it rains in here. Or when the snow slides off the roof. I find that so distracting. So we're not sure what Jesus did. But we do know that the men finally made their way through the roof. And then verse 5. Sorry, the end of verse 4. They lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Verse 5. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, so now, now take a step back. You're in the crowd. You're listening to Jesus speak. You're noticing how stuffy the room feels. You're noticing how crowded it is. Every time you look, you just see more people. You hear this noise coming from above you. Dirt, mud, branches begin to fall on top of you as you are sitting listening to Jesus. Suddenly a hole appears in the roof, and this man is being lowered down through the roof. You can see his four friends up on the roof, kind of hanging onto the ropes or whatever they use to lower him down, like, ooh, and they're dropping him right in front of Jesus. And it's not difficult to figure out he's paralyzed. He has no movement in his body. What, what, what do you think Jesus is going to do? The expectation is what great faith these men had to bring him to the one who has been healing and casting out demons. And they, they bring him to Jesus, and he looks at them, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Because that's why they brought him to Jesus, right? To have his sins forgiven? Now Jesus does the unexpected. Verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there. They're questioning in their hearts. Why does Jesus speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So let's, let's, scribes, remember they're the experts in the law. Their responsibility was to not only read and understand the law, but make some judgment calls on what would be appropriate within the law and what would be inappropriate in the law. And as they watched Jesus say this to the man, the judgment that they passed was probably accurate. Here is Jesus dishonoring God by claiming to do what only God could do. So they're accusing Jesus of taking God's unique position. But accusing is probably not the right word, because they don't say anything. They're questioning in their hearts, verse 6. They're thinking, and wait a minute, what just happened here? Why did he do that? Can he do that? He's blaspheming? Is he blaspheming? I mean, so you have that internal conversation that you and I usually have. It's happening in the hearts of the scribes. And verse 8, right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves. And so he said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Now, just to be clear, moms know everything. 
But I am thankful moms don't have that ability. They, they have a good idea what you're thinking, but Jesus was 100% accurate. Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, verse 9, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, get up, take your mat, and walk? So ask yourself, which one's easier? I, I mean, the, the reality is that these men, and, and I think even us to a degree, if we're honest, think that by Jesus saying that their sin, his sins were being forgiven, that, that that's way easier. That's way easier because, because when I say that, you don't see any verifiable proof. You don't see results immediately that it actually happened. So, so anybody can say anything and get away with it. Because there's nothing, I don't have to produce anything in front of you. It's just words. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Yours, but, but there's no authority in me to do that, but, but it's easier just to say that and lay it out there. And Jesus' point in this argument was, listen, let me do what you think is harder to do. You think it's harder for me to heal the man than it is to forgive his sins. So if I can do the thing that you think is more difficult, then I can certainly do the thing that's easier. Verse 10, he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth, he looks at the paralyzed man and says this, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now before we get to the, my favorite part of the story, we need to remember the reason Jesus is healing the man is to demonstrate that he has authority. We need to remember that by studying this story and seeing that Jesus is healing the man, it's not because the most important thing is this man gets healed. The most important thing is that this man's sins were forgiven. He's simply healing the man to prove that his authority, his power, and his ability to forgive was legitimate. What he was healing the man for was to offer verifiable proof that forgiveness was a gift that was given to this man. So after Jesus says, take your mat, or sorry, get up, take your mat, and go home, immediately, verse 12, I love Mark and his immediately, immediately, this man stood up, took the mat, and walked out in front of everyone. Now, you had to picture that for a second, because you, you see the man who's paralyzed on his mat. Jesus says, get up and take your mat and leave, go home. And so the man stands up, picks up his mat like a surfboard, and he starts trying to make his way through the crowd. Remember, it's so packed in there, you can't move. And so he's trying to, okay, listen, new legs coming through. Come on, get out of my way, move. And you know who he walks by? Those same scribes. And I, and I can't help with my, I like to think it's my sanctified imagination. I can't help but think of, Jesus, of, a, of this man who just healed, was just healed by Jesus, making direct eye contact with a few of them as he brushes past them. Pardon me, sir. Excuse me, I want to go home. The people's response is they were astonished. And they gave glory to God. Now listen, there's, there, is, there is significance in this story that relates to the healing that this man experienced. But not as much significance as we often place there. See, uh, Jesus has... The authority, the power, the, the ability 
to bring healing, but we need to understand that the healing in this story was actually secondary for Jesus. It was a sign that Jesus is the only one who is capable of bringing forgiveness. It was verifiable proof that the forgiveness had happened for this paralyzed man. Now, now I don't want to discourage anybody. Healing in this world is still possible. But I do want to be honest. It's the exception. It's not the rule. For Jesus, healing somebody with cancer or with a disease, or with a mental illness, takes no more effort than setting stars and moons in motion. It's like finger painting for Jesus. And one day, one day the world that was fractured by the fall will be restored and made right. And we long for that. And we look forward to seeing all the creation restored to be what it was meant to be. But for now, when we see a need for healing, we see those needs for healing as a reminder of the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us here in chapter 2. And that's his greater concern and our greatest need is the forgiveness of sin. Jesus alone has the authority and the power and the ability of the Son of God to forgive sin. Our redemption has been purchased by his willing sacrifice on the cross. Our verifiable proof that our forgiveness has been attained is no longer through the work of miracles. Our verifiable proof that our forgiveness has been attained is an empty tomb. So as we come to the tables this morning to remember what it is that Jesus did for us on that cross, we must remember that what he did was take care of what was our greatest need. The fact that in our sin we have been fully separated from God that we had no way of coming to God on our own. But God, seeing us in our weakness, seeing us in the midst of our sin, in the middle of our rebellion, God loved us. Jesus Christ came and lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death that we should have died by willingly, willingly going to the cross to purchase our peace. The very resurrection of Jesus Christ when he came out of the tomb that day. That's the proof that his payment for our sin was enough. And so this morning as we take opportunity to observe communion together, what what we'll do is we will look at a picture that Jesus left for us to remind us of what he paid for our sin. The cracker is just a cracker and the juice is just juice. There's nothing magical in it. There's nothing grace-filled in it. You don't become a super-Christian by munching on the cracker and drinking the juice. What Jesus did was leave us a picture to gaze upon, to be reminded of what he was willing to do for us. To remind us that our sin has been forgiven. To remind us of the cost of our sin. And so just logistically speaking, in a moment I'm going to pray. I will then, when I say amen... Music will begin, and you can leave your seats to the right, head up to the table to receive the elements, and 
return to your seats, and, and after everybody has the elements, then I will, uh, actually Jason will come and lead us through observing communion together. Are you forgiven? If you're in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. You want proof? He's risen. And he's risen indeed. Father God, thank you for the beautiful gift of forgiveness. Lord, I ask as we take a few moments to just reflect on what it is that you have done for us to purchase that forgiveness. I ask that you would be glorified. Father, may we continue to be reminded of the cost. But God, I pray today we'd be reminded. (laughs) We'd be reminded that it was effective. And God, as you rose from the dead that day, you forever left in your rearview mirror sin, death, and hell for those who are in Christ. So Lord, I pray that those here this morning who may not know him, that even now as we look at these elements and are reminded of the shed blood of Christ, of his body that was broken for us, that Father, there in the quietness of their seat, they might cry out to you and ask you to save them from their sin. Father, for those of the those of us that know you, Lord, may we have the right perspective. May we be reminded that the empty tomb is our verifiable proof. Amen. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you demonstrated that mercy in ways that we could never possibly repay and that we could never really truly understand the depth of it. God, remind us of that often. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. It's overtime. (laughs) We're still in Mark chapter 2. I am not doing the whole chapter, but I I, I could not avoid this next, this is a technical term, chunk. This next chunk here in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13, is, uh, is fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me. So, Let's, uh, let's start reading in verse 13. It says, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and the whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. So you have Jesus... Again, heading towards the sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. He is teaching, and it sounds like the people just keep coming, right? They just keep coming, and he can't escape them. Not that he's trying to escape them. They're just everywhere. And then as he's passing by, and so so Jesus, in some kind of movement here, he sees this fellow named Levi. Levi is also known as Matthew, uh, the author of the gospel that precedes Mark here. And he sees Levi, who we'll refer to him as in the story, Levi, sitting in the toll booth, which, I don't know about you, it's kind of funny to read the word toll booth in Scripture, but that really is a good understanding of, of what would happen. So the tax collector, which is what uh, Levi was, would set up a toll booth along a, a, a well-traveled 
road, and then he would then collect money on goods in transit. So, so being where Levi is here next to the Sea of Galilee, there is a, a strong chance that what he's doing is he's collecting the, the, the taxes on fish that had been caught out of the Sea of Galilee. All right? Jesus invites him to be a disciple by saying the two words, follow me. This is entirely significant. The fact that Jesus would speak to a tax collector and invite him to be a personal disciple would be unheard of. Tax collectors were the, the, the most despised people. It was the most despised profession, for sure, in the entire land. Because the, the tax collectors were known for being dishonest, for being greedy, for being thieves. This is why. They would make their living on the taxes they would collect from their countrymen. And there was no accountability so they would hear from Rome what they were supposed to collect. So Rome would tell Frank, collect 20 bucks from them. And Frank would then go, the tax this week is $35. And then what would happen is, I would give them the 20, and I would keep 15 for myself. And, and so there was, there was a hatred between the, the people and the tax collectors, and they were looked down upon. They were looked down upon so much that even the poor would reject alms from a tax collector. Because they just assumed the money had been stolen and they didn't want any part of it. They were looked upon, down upon by, by um, uh, those religious. If, if a tax collector entered a home, everybody in the home, as well as the home itself, would be declared unclean. If a tax collector came to you and asked about your property, the Pharisees actually passed a law that made it allowable for you to lie to the tax collector in order to protect your property. I mean, there's, there is a hatred between the tax collectors and the people that is palpable. I mean, this is, this is a real hatred. And Jesus looks at this most hated man named Levi and says, come and join me. And it says, Levi got up. He followed him. Verse 15. While he was reclining, talking about Jesus, while he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. So now, Levi has accepted. He's invited, evidently, Jesus and his disciples to his home to have a formal meal. When you see reclining at the table, I think too often we think I'm laying down in front of the television watching Netflix and just throwing chips and guac in my mouth, right? But this is, this is him actually, this is a formal event. They're reclining on couches, on cushions that surround a table, and they are eating together. This is a formal banquet that is happening between Jesus, his disciples, a tax collector, and a whole mess of sinners. I've, I've been to parties like that. Um, you, you get a little nervous. The Pharisees got a little nervous too. Look at verse 16. The scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, and they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors? And sinners. So just, we're going to talk about Pharisees a lot through the study of Mark, but let me just kind of give you this picture of what a Pharisee is. Pharisees really do, I mean, they get ripped on all the time, right? I mean, e even I, I mean, I'll, I'll attack people, no, I won't attack people, I'll attack Pharisaical thinking. I mean, that's, that's a Pharisee, that's a Pharisee, that's a Pharisee. What you have to understand is Pharisees were some of the most allegiant, religious, um, wise, committed people of, of the day. 
So what a Pharisee would do is, in, in, in an effort to protect the law of God, they would look at what the actual law was, and then they would figure out ways to build a fence around it in order to make sure that nobody even came close to violating or offending that law. So here's a goofy example for you. Let's say the law says, no television on Sunday, especially now that the Patriots are out. <laughs> you can cheer every time, it's fine. <laughs> no television on Sunday. What the Pharisees would then do is say, okay, in order to make sure that nobody fails that one, no television. And what they're doing is they're building a fence around the law because they believe that if the person was to violate the law, they were in grave danger in the eyes of God and they didn't want to allow anybody to cross over that line and have that on their consciences. So, so at, at its most basic level, what they were doing was really a pure and, and holy idea. But the problem becomes when your fence becomes the law. So what you eat, who you eat it with, and where you eat it becomes more important than your heart. So knowing all of that, what the Pharisees say to Jesus' disciple, and I'm gonna, you have the New Living Translation, you have the best translation of this question. My translation says, they ask his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The New Living Translation says, so knowing this, why does he eat with scum? Because that's the perspective. This is unacceptable. This is unacceptable. And you follow this man? This is, this is unheard of. This is unthinkable. This is unacceptable. This should never happen. And Jesus overhears them, and he says this to them in verse 17. It's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call righteous. I came to call the sinners. That first part, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. That is a common proverb of the day. And then he quotes that, and then he applies it to himself and to his ministry. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call those who desperately need me. I came to call the sinners. Guess which one you are. And thank God for that. Because that's why he came. He came for sinners. He came to show the mercy of God to those who deserved it least. I want to make one application and then jump back to kind of what I was just talking about. But one of the things that we really should apply from this passage in our own lives, in our own church, uh, in our own ministry as a church, is to remember that we are not called as followers of Jesus Christ to keep a safe bubble around us. God never intended for that. Um, he's called us clearly to be salt and light, right? But salt and light don't build walls. Salt and light permeate and transform the environment that they're introduced to. So I think too often what we do is we, we build this protective bubble because we're afraid of the mess. Guess what? It's going to get messy. If any of you have paid any attention at all, you will know doing church causes a mess. We are called not to insulate ourselves, not to be a country club. We're not called to pay our, month, pay our monthly dues and then vote on what we want out in the parking lot. 
We are called to get involved in the mess. And when you get involved in the mess, what ends up happening is people react. Sometimes people respond, and that's what we pray for. We pray that people would respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, knowing that he came to show them mercy when they didn't deserve it. We pray their response would be one of, of yielding, of repentance, and of learning about who he is and loving him more and more each day. But sometimes they react. Sometimes they react. And we can't be overly concerned with how they react. Now, I fully invite our church membership and regular attenders to again grab an elder, grab a pastor. Any concerns that you have, let us know. Let us pray for you. Pray with us that God would continue to guide us and lead us through the directions. However, there are times when we serve people who are really struggling and are hurt and who are broken. And instead of responding, they react. That's happened a few times in the last couple of years to a few of us here. That's okay. Because God's called us to be salt and light, not to be an insulated bubble. And so as we continue to do ministry, we need to remember we are no better than the person who reacts. You know, do you know what you are? <laughs> Sound like a setup for a slam. You know what you are? That's not what I mean. You know what you are? You're the same thing that I am. And, and I love this story in 2 Kings chapter 7. There's a story about how the city is being besieged and they've been cut off from all outside transport of food and water. And the people inside the city are beginning to starve to death. It talks about how they are selling even a donkey's head for an exorbitant amount of money because that's the only nutrition and food people are getting. They're even taking the meat off a donkey's head. I mean, things are bad. I mean, that's worse than Scrapple. Okay? <laughs> Man, Patriots, Scrapple. You guys are a messy bunch. Um, <laughs> so things are not going well. And sitting outside the city are four men who are lepers. And you'll remember from last week, if you're a leper, you are cast out of the city. You are not allowed in the city. And there they sit outside the city. And they, too, are starving to death because the siege has cut them off from any food and any nutrition. So, so they talk to each other at one point. They've reached the point of utter desperation and they say listen here's the deal if we go back into the city we get killed we're lepers we're not allowed in there we get stoned to death so, but if we sit here we're gonna starve to death so i tell you what this is what i think we should do the camp of our enemy is right over there let's go into their camp they certainly have food Let's go into their camp and pray that maybe they will show us some mercy. What's the worst that can happen? If we go in the city, we die. We stay here, we die. If we go there, they kill us. What's the worst that can happen? And so the four lepers, and you don't know how they go into the camp. You, you, in my mind, you got them kind of peeking around corners and things. And they get there, and they show up at the camp. And what they find is it is completely empty of people. There's not a single soldier there. And yet they left everything behind. Gold, silver, bread as far as your eyes could see. And it talks about how they entered one tent. They emptied it of its contents, and they went and hid it. And they're just eating themselves back to, to health and, and, and excitement and enthusiasm. And they hide the first tent stuff. They go to the second tent, and it says they empty the second tent, and they, uh, they, they, they hide that tent's worth of stuff. And then they come back, and then at one point, one of them gets a conscience and says, hold on, hold on, hold on. We do not well. We need to go back to our city 
and tell them, and here's the word that's used, tell them the good news of what it is we found. See, you and I are just beggars who have found the mother load. Should we sit on our hands with our teeth in our mouth? We do not well. We must be willing to get messy. Do you believe you're just another beggar? And when you think that and believe that, does it discourage you? See, I think the other application we can make from this text, from those who are sitting around the table with Jesus in their presence, is, is they just came as they were. Tax collectors, I'm a tax collector, here I am. I'm a sinner, here I am. Too often what we think is we need to put, we put our hope in being the, the moral person. We put our hope in being the person who deserves we put our hope in being the person who has, who has earned these things. And in reality, the Pharisees have it right. Jesus is hanging with nothing but scum. But that doesn't make you unacceptable. See, what Jesus has done is he's made acceptable the unacceptable. What Jesus has done is he has brought hope to those who would sit at the table with him. Because your hope is not found in what you bring to the table. Your hope is found in who sits at the table with you. And Jesus is willing to sit at the table with you because your hope is in the Christ who makes unacceptable things acceptable. Your hope is found only in Jesus. And I don't know who's sitting here and like, man, I, I, he can't possibly love me. He can't possibly put up with me. He doesn't want anything to do with me. That's not true. He celebrates the fact that he comes in our weakness. He celebrates the fact that he wants to forgive. He wants to extend grace. He wants to show you mercy. And that's what he wants for you. If you would cry out for it. Stop trying to earn it. And understand it's a gift of grace that can never be purchased but by the blood of Jesus Christ. Your hope is in the fact that Jesus makes the unacceptable acceptable. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for just the, the mere fact that he would be willing to sit with someone like me. Father, thank you that in Christ we have a hope. We have a purpose. We have a reason. Father, I thank you that his forgiveness has covered a multitude of sins and will cover a multitude more. God, please, I pray for the one who's sitting here this morning and thinks that, that it completely relies on their ability to obey, their ability to do, their ability to be, their ability to not do. Father, instead, may they rest completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ and in him alone. God, please, would you remind us that we have a singular hope and it's not in our ability to score high on a test. It's in what you've done for us. So we thank you for Jesus.